Glocal, podcast on locally incubated global technology powerhouses. I accomplished things that I didn't think I was going to be accomplished, failed more times than I thought a human potentially fail, but still survived at the end of the day. Back when I was an entrepreneur, I would always get the question, what's the biggest mistake you've done so far? I just couldn't remember because I felt like I was making a mistake every day. But somehow the number of rights overweight, the number of wrongs, balance um, just ended up being fine at the end of the you know period or year, whatever. And we came through and there was light at the end of the tunnel. Very inspiring words from Rina. She raised more than $50 million for her two ventures, did 40 investments as a venture capitalist, and is eager to do more. Full disclosure, she is my partner at Fivefront Istanbul for almost four years now. She is great to work with. This episode is about Rina's life as an entrepreneur and as an investor. She has done the full circle. She started as an investor at Morgan Stanley, later moved into the private equity firm Turkmen, and then she became an entrepreneur. Now she's a venture capitalist. She has inspired me a lot for the past couple of years. I'm sure she's going to inspire you too. Let's dive right in. Hey, Rina, how are you? Good, Ennis, how are you? I'm great, thanks. So this episode is going to be a bit different. So we're not going to talk about a specific company per se, but we're going to talk about your background, first as an investor, and then how you turned out to be an entrepreneur, and then back to being an investor. All right, sounds good. So let's go back to before peak, meaning when you were doing um, investment banking at Morgan Stanley, as far as I know, and then you joined Turkvan here in Istanbul. Can you please tell us a bit about your experience before you started peak? Yeah, I say I did like a 360 in my career. Uh, Because right after college, uh, just like many of the people who didn't know what they wanted to do with their lives, I wanted to invest in banking. Uh, And I was in uh, Morgan Stanley, London, invest in banking. And then I uh, quickly actually moved to the Turkey office with a smaller team to cover the Turkish desk. And this was around the time where the financial meltdown was happening all over the world in 08. Good old times. Yeah, exactly. So it wasn't the best time to go into invest in banking. I think after that, kind of that profession never went back to its former glory. Uh, When the world was collapsing all over us, I realized that it was time to actually not to like try to grasp at the straws and move on maybe. So I moved to Turkvan Private Equity, which was the oldest and the largest um, private equity shop here based in Turkey, investing in Turkish businesses. That was like really formative a couple of years for me because it taught me how to uh, look for companies, how to invest in companies. Once you invest, how to become their true partners because the private equity model, we either you know buy the entire company or buy a big significant stake. So it was really important in me seeing how to interact with these businesses you know, from different sectors and verticals. Um, so I stayed in private equity for three years and realized that I wanted to do something a little bit more impactful where I had a more control over my destiny. And that's when I quit my private equity cushiony job and um, started Peak Games with a couple of co-founders. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this was before the age of mobile. Uh, we started building uh, Facebook games back then. And even before building games, we just started publishing them. We would get titles from Southeast Asia, uh, localize them and, you know, bring them to market and for the Turkish uh, user base. Before we go into specifics about Peak Games, what pushed you to make that bold move? I mean, it should be really tough to move from being a private equity person to an entrepreneur. I mean, you took a lot of risks. What pushed you? What was kind of the trend that you followed? That's a good question. I mean, I think, you know, in life, I'm like a firm believer that there are a couple 
different pillars, which, you know, um, take effect into playing into your success and, and your happiness, basically, ultimately. And one of them is like financial. Um, the other one is impact uh, to yourself and to the world. And the third one is um, self-fulfillment or like ego. Unless you at least touch upon at least minimum of two of those pillars, I don't think you're truly happy. At the private equity job, yes, the financial side and the benefits and, and the lifestyle, I think that was all there. It was way better than quitting a job and having no salary and not knowing whether the business was going to work. But I think the latter two pillars, whereas, you know, the impact and the self-fulfillment, I didn't feel much of any of that when I was just working like a white collar mm-hmm. corporate job. Um, I didn't think, you know, I was I was changing anything for a lot of people. And I think the private equity business in itself has impact, but I didn't think my mm-hmm. position within that firm granted me that. And, and you know, unlike a, you know, a really flat organization within a startup, these funds, you know, had a little bit more hierarchy. And until I could have some impact, you know, I, I would need to, you know, slave away for years, maybe. Um, so maybe it was like boldness coming out of naiveness or lack of inexperience, but I thought this like 24-year-old something um, maybe could do something a little more impactful. And I think I just got lucky with that sense. Cool. And how was Turkey back then? So when you moved out of Turkvan to start Peak Games, I guess that was 2010, how was technology and the internet industry overall trending in Turkey? It was an interesting time because I think it was an inflection point for Turkey back then. Obviously, the world was moving and they were moving on to different stages of a consumer internet. And this was, again, right before mobile, which was a game changer for everybody around the world. If you caught that wave, if you were one of the first players, which we luckily were with Peak. But Turkey in and itself was also very, very hot space. There was a lot of foreign capital, both in terms of seed investors, growth capital, and even private equity that was looking to Turkey, looking for opportunities to invest in. And, you know, there was this funny talk that, you know, BRIC, uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China could become T-BRIC. Turkey could be one of those. It was a very, very good time to be an entrepreneur in Turkey back then because, you know, not a lot of competition, but also a lot of attention from internationals. So that's why I think with Peak, we got very lucky because we raised over $35 million in funding in, in about a year and a half. We did a couple different rounds, but it was pretty easy to raise mm-hmm. on the back of an impressive team and a hopeful vision, which might not be the case for Turkey now. Unfortunately. And how was gaming? I mean, when you look into gaming today, it's a hot and a warm industry. Everyone's putting more and more money and resources into especially mobile hyper-casual games. How was that back in 2010? So gaming has always been a hit-driven business. It's it's sadly almost like the movie industry, but we say it's a little bit uh, better than the movie industry because at least with, with a movie, you put all of that money into it, and before the box office, you actually have no idea how it's going to do. With gaming, you can test prior, you can pivot, you can keep um, like improving and optimizing, and if it's a dead cause, at least you can let it go, you know, before spending millions and millions of dollars into it. But then again, it's a hit-driven business. There have been many, many cases in the gaming history where uh, a company skyrockets to stardom with just one title and they can't continue that success. Rovio is a great example of that. They started out as an agency. Maybe Angry Birds was their 30-something game title they pushed out. And back then, Angry Birds was the game that everybody in the world was playing on mobile. But afterwards, they tried to you know get the juices out of that title as much as possible with going into different verticals with that title. But as new titles and games couldn't follow 
on and follow suit, you know, the company's trajectory changed majorly. So I think that was a big learning for gaming companies all over the world and investors as such. Uh, so now the gaming companies or the businesses that do well or that gain a lot of investment from investors are the ones that value talent and continuous creation of mm-hmm. content and titles more than anything else. I feel like investors are more investing into team and then the processes that comes with the team for game building and then testing whether to kill or move on with the same game. For sure. I mean, it's not only for gaming, but um, for any business out there. Uh, team is one of the things that we look at and whether this team, once you know they see that they face different problems, are they going to be able to come over it? True. And you said you raised 35 million euros in a span of, what, two years from mostly international investors. How was that process back in 2010 to 12? Uh, was it easy for, easy to fundraise and how did you reach out to investors or did they come for you? It was very interesting. We were always fundraising, I feel. We would be like closing around and I feel I would still be pitching <laughs> whenever I met an investor. And it was a combination of us reaching out when we were actively fundraising, but mostly people uh, coming you know, inbound interest coming to us. Uh, we you know, made it a point to travel a lot and visit all of the gaming summits and conferences and be in gaming hubs whenever we could. And since we gained a lot of user base from Turkey in a very quick amount of time, we kind of got the attention of a, quite a few VCs around the world um, because they probably never saw a gaming company or a fast-growing tech company from our part of the world in that short span of a time. So there was a lot of inbound interest. We had a lot of press coverage for Peak as well, which was very, very useful. Every time we were featured in a place like VentureBeat or Business Insider or TechCrunch, we would have like five VCs email us mm-hmm, on that mm-hmm. very day. A lot of inbound interest. It's not the case anymore in Turkey, at least. And then you exited from Peak in 2013. How did you come to that decision and how was that exit process? It was an interesting period of time because I think exiting from a company is always like kind of separating from a dream or a baby almost uh, because you put everything you have into that company, into that team, even if you know that the company is going to be really well. It's an emotional stage. Um, I had come to a point within peak where I was feeling my impact within the business or even my value add or my need less and less. Um, so I wanted to feel that excitement of building something from scratch all over again. I was interested in that very, very early early stage of building a business from nothing. So I kind of craved for that adrenaline. And and, and that was a very, very personal decision. So you took the risk again, uh, which brings me to flat four day. I mean, you went from a highly scalable global gaming business to a more of a regional operational marketplace model. What drove you to that decision? It wasn't an intentional decision. Um, you know, the second company I built with my uh, with my brother, and he's the godfather of the idea of the company. And obviously, it was a very, very regional model of a business that exists around the world. Um, you know, Airbnb was booming and HomeAway has been in market for quite a few years, even before Airbnb. And Turkey, when we looked at it, Istanbul and Antalya, two cities in the you know, Turkish market were among always the top 10 visited cities around the world. And we said, you know, we have this gold mine. People already come here. Uh, why don't we give them a platform um, to do this both locally and internationally? Um, so that's how the idea started. But as you said, it was a very different business than Peak. Um, Peak was essentially a software company. It was a purely technology company versus a flat 4D is a technology enabled services marketplace, which is very, very different. The skill sets that required and the growth trajectory and the resources that you need to get there. It's a very, very different business um, type. And I'm very glad as an investor now that I got to see like, you know, two very distinct uh, businesses personally. Yeah, I was going to ask you that as well. How did that change your overall investment perspective? I mean, you as Rina personally, Uh, Would you rather invest into more highly scalable software businesses, which is more high risk, high return, 
or more regional or regional marketplaces where I think there's lower downside, but the upside also seems to be a bit more capped. I think like my risk appetite and the way that I'd like to invest mm-hmm. is like the first category. I also, nothing against Turkey, obviously I'm based here and I invest in Turkish companies, but I really dislike companies or businesses that are just exposed to one market and one market alone. This is because especially when you're in an emerging market, obviously the market dynamics and the trends um, are quite volatile and out of your hand. So the fact that a company's destiny or their success is tied to something else besides their execution capability and besides the global trends is a little bit unnerving because within, you know, when you're investing in early stage, you're already getting enough risk in terms of team execution, you know, product market fit or defensibility and all of that stuff that anyone around the world is taking the risk of. If you want to add like the country risk on top of that, um, the associated reward has to be amazing. And when we look at the Turkish history of startups, the you know, Turkey serving startups having liquidity, you know, that risk reward ratio, I don't think is there yet. So I would be more in the lines of highly scalable tech focused companies that are, you know, using the Turkish talent to build something global. Is that why you pushed flat for day to grow around the region in Eastern Europe and MENA? And how did that turn out? I mean, were you guys successful in expanding flat for day regionally? That was the reasoning behind it. But obviously, it's a very, very tough game plan. And we've seen that not only with our business, but with a lot of the different marketplaces and platforms here, which started Turkey specific and that wanted to grow regionally. Um, Because there's a big aspect of not only tech transferability, but also a lot of logistical infield work that you have to do in all of these new markets that you go into. And it's not like we're targeting like a big market of hundreds of millions of people that speak the same language are within the same time zone, all of our neighboring regions. It's very fragmented. All of the new market entry, like it requires a new playbook, new resources. So it's tough. It was tough for us. And I I see that it's tough for a lot of the businesses that we encounter and we consider investing in. And that plays, you know, that takes part in our investing decisions, this personal experience we've had. Mm-hmm. And then you raised from local funds, uh, you raised, I guess, $6 million for a flat for day, if I'm not mistaken. So you had the chance to work with international funds like um, Early Bird and then local funds like 212. How would you compare the two? I mean, by 2013, 2014, I guess there were some local VCs, which wasn't the case back in 2010. Um, Do you think, A, how was it to work with international VCs compared to local VCs? B, did that VC activity ramp up as you think it would over the past five years? Mm -hmm. There are advantages and disadvantages of working with local only and international only. I think a combination of both is the ideal scenario. That's a great answer. Yeah, obviously, when you have the local VCs, it's great because if you have something urgent, you know, they're a phone call away or you can take a cab and go down to their office and sit down for two hours if you need to walk through or talk through a problem. International VC, the best exposure or the most frequent exposure you can have is a board meeting once a month. And you don't know if it's going to be in your offices or you have to go over to Berlin, you know, for example, with a German VC to have a board meeting there. And obviously, it's a very much arm's length, bird's eye view conversation. And it's more investor versus founder versus if you're seeing someone more frequently, I think the rapport or the relationship that you build can sometimes feel a little bit more closer. But obviously, on the downside, an international VC, because they invest internationally, sees similar models, similar problems from all over the world. And they might have a little bit more ammunition in the form of experience as to what you might encounter down the line. And the connections they can make are a little bit grander in scale than a local VC who might just have that local exposure. 
So in the case, if it's a Turkish VC only investing in Turkish companies, startups, and the Turkish startup history is obviously not that deep, you know, we haven't had a company that did an IPO or did like a billion dollar exit. So if you haven't experienced those things yourself, either as an investor, as an entrepreneur, guiding your entrepreneurs through similar problems will be quite difficult uh, versus if you're raising from top tier, a European or preferably even Sandhill Road investor, you know, they've seen all of those things multiple, multiple times and they can pinpoint problems before you even experience them. So having a combination of both is obviously the ideal scenario. That's what I feel like as well. I mean, VC is a proximity-based business and even more so at the earlier stages. Um, a VC can be really helpful in the early stages, but as you become a bigger organization, the resourcefulness and the connections and introductions play a more key role. And that's where you need the international investors. And you raised funding from the public company HomeAway which then got acquired by Expedia. Why would a U.S. public company buy shares in a Turkish company and how did that come about? Uh, it's interesting. And when we talk about our investment strategy, 500 now, why companies buy startups or why companies buy other companies is a big uh, discussion point and when we're making an investment. Obviously, you know, because when we invest, we always want to invest in companies that will have some sort of liquidity down the line, whether through public markets or private. And home away, or don't need to name names, but other public companies or big giants that are very acquisitive are very active also in the investing space. Because when a big company is buying up another company, it doesn't usually happen overnight, but you have to have some sort of a relationship. And the relationship either comes through a customer or a supplier-provider relationship or sometimes through an investing relationship. And with this second company, with flat for day and HomeAway, the relationship was both. We first started as a customer relationship. We were a big supplier of inventory to HomeAway from Turkey. Actually, all of the Turkey inventory was coming through us. They're basically certified and licensed provider. And because they were so happy with the relationship, they wanted to invest with the hopes that it was going to turn into something bigger back then. Mm -hmm. Amazing. I want to go back to your Harvard days. As far as I know, you had the scholarship from Harvard. And then with that, when you invested into Apple and Amazon back in 2002, if I'm, I'm vaguely remembering a conversation like that with you, can you tell me a bit about that? Like what made you to invest into a stock market while you were only what like 18 yeah it was interesting yeah i was in a financial aid at harvard and because of that i would also have to work to make pocket change i guess i was a, a teaching assistant with you know economics 101 in my second year and worked at the library and all sorts of odd jobs but yeah when i made that money i would go invested into stock market mainly because one of my early friends and later roommates at Harvard, and her dad used to work at Goldman Sachs. And, you know, that's what he did. And he would come over and talk to us about all of these technology stocks and companies that were recently public that would do so well in the, into the future. And then back then, I didn't know too much about it. But everything he said would make so much sense. And I said, you know, why not? And it turned out to be a, a good investment back then for us. Good investment. Yeah. Seems like we were born as an investor. Last question on Harvard. You also wrote a book there, right? Yes. Why? <laughs> and how did that turn around? Yes, I guess like that's like the entrepreneurial streak again. I wanted to do something while still at Harvard, while I had my entire life ahead of me, uh, low risk, potentially high return. And I didn't have too much capital. I wasn't a quarter, right? And in the, back then in Harvard, the technology streak hadn't caught on yet. It was very different than the West Coast. It's very different than Stanford and Berkeley. And I think Harvard has changed now. But back then it was pretty much, you know, if you were top of your class, you would either go into banking, trading or consulting. Nobody would think about joining a startup or starting a company. In fact, from my year, the people who joined Facebook, people would laugh at them. But so I was thinking, you know, what can I do? I'm not a coder. I can't even build anything of that sort. I don't have a lot of money to start a business. So what can I do? It doesn't require a lot of capital to start 
and doesn't necessarily require skill set that I don't have. So me and my roommate, who was a lit major, we said, hey, why don't we write this like young adult and chick lit book about Harvard, like this fictional book and make it a book series and sell it to a publishing company under a pen name. So we pitched it to a couple of publishing houses even before we wrote a page. We just had like an outline, a page of an outline. And we had like competitive offers right then and there based on that um, one page. And they wanted to see chapters. So I remember like, you know, spending like two nights in a row, not sleeping, like cranking out three chapters that we would have to send to these publishing houses so that they would give us an offer. But the plan was always to do it under a pen name because we, you know, really weren't thinking that, you know, this was going to be our career. But at the end of the day, the publishing houses that made us the offer thought that we we, you know, having our real identities attached with Harvard was going to be a sales point uh, for this series. So we said, why not? And it was a fun project. I look back and laugh at it now, but it was it was good times. How many people bought the book? I don't know. It just uh, yeah, across like different. It was like a series and published in different languages. I don't have the exact number, but didn't do badly. Great story. Now we moved to 500 Istanbul and what happened over the past three, three and a half years as we worked together. Um Intentionally, I wasn't going to mention 500 Istanbul that much because I don't want to seem kind of marketing our fund. But anyways, I'll just ask a couple of questions. So how has your investing evolved personally over the past three years? I mean, what are, what are your major takeaways and what have you learned? What would you never do again? Yeah, I think I always knew something deep inside of my heart that kind of got approved with the investments they've made over the uh, past couple of years. When VCs are asked what they look at when they're investing businesses, the number one answer that you get is the team. Obviously, team is very important. It is up there. It's one of the most important things. Um, but I think the market and the market that this team is addressing is usually often downplayed mm-hmm. um, by early stage investors. And I've realized that market, if not more important than the team, is so important. You know, people say that a good team can pivot, but yeah. pivoting means making slight changes. If you're stuck in a bad market, even pivoting enough, pivoting a hundred times will not get you out of that market rut. Um, so understanding the market that this team is going after has been the number one um, decision-making point, I think, in our investment mandate. And I see like there's a lot of pattern matching as well in the VC business. What are some of the patterns or trends that kind of shape your investment thinking? Um, Anything in particular, especially from Turkey, that you see have a lot of, I don't know, B2B SaaS companies with mid-ticket sizes become more successful or anything like that? Yeah, I think when we look at our portfolio, this wasn't intentional either, but we see that there's like a a strong preference and skew towards uh, B2B SaaS companies. And the reason I think for that is, uh, especially for global facing international aimed companies to start out from an emerging market and try to have like a consumer facing product be really, really successful is very tough because at the end of the game, unless you have an insane network effect, which only a handful of companies in the world have, the consumer facing business ends up being deep pocket game. It's a function of how much money you've raised and how much money you can spend on user acquisition in a sustainable fashion. And in a place like Turkey, where fundraising is a problem currently and will continue to be, I think, in the next few years, unless you can think that you'll be able to raise like hundreds of millions of dollars, trying to go after a consumer-facing market at the global level is going to be really, really tough. But on the other hand, a B2B SaaS company, your audience is different. You can do really, really targeted user acquisition. And at the end of the day, once you acquire that user, the product will have to speak for itself in, in you know, retaining those customers and lowering churn and then maybe getting new leads. So we've seen more success with B2B. So that's where we go. And in terms of the types of things we try to invest in, obviously like highly regulated industries, incumbents play a big role and are slow to innovate. Are obviously 
you know, industries that we try to go after. But having said this, being a regional investor, you can't be too thesis driven because you already have shallow enough of a market that if you also focus vertically, I think your choosing pool is going to be really, really tiny. Um, so we're not super thesis driven in the sense that, you know, we focus only on certain categories that put, you know, certain um, trends in the heart of the business. But, you know, there are certain things that we look for in terms of actually addressing a serious problem for a big enough of a market. Mm-hmm. And you moved from the investing side to the entrepreneurial side, and now you became an investor again. Are you going to stay as an investor? I mean, do you think being an investor is more impactful than being an entrepreneur? Who knows? That's a good question. I was moderating a panel the other day with three recently exited uh, founders from Turkey, and I asked them the same question. And funny enough, uh, two out of three said that they had no intention of becoming a professional investor, but they would invest in in companies or in funds to feed back into the ecosystem. And the reason I wanted to be a professional investor after being an entrepreneur two times in a row was that when I was an entrepreneur, I would have a lot of entrepreneurs come to me either for mentorship or a chat for sometimes seed funding. And I didn't have the bandwidth when I was running a company myself to do any of those things. So I thought I was pretty closed off and I had a lot of experience that could be meaningful to a lot of different people, but I didn't have a medium to channel that. And that's why I wanted to do investing and especially in the seed stage, because I thought I had, you know, impact um, to give to the ecosystem. Hearing that answer from different entrepreneurs was really interesting. But again, who knows? I mean, I'm really happy with the position that I have being able to touch a lot of entrepreneurs, both from Turkey and from the region and see them grow and do very, very successful things and living vicariously through them. But obviously, sometimes you miss that feeling of kind of rolling up your sleeves and going into it, you know, knee high and basically trying to build something that's also very, very fun and tempting. But I'm, I'm pretty content with where I am right now. Time will show. Um, last question. If you were to go back 10 years, and speak to the 24, 25-year-old Rina, would you advise her to leave her white-collar job as a private equity person and then become an entrepreneur? Oh, for sure. I'm, I'm so happy that I did. I don't know what got into me back then. I made that bold move because everybody around me thought I was I was insane and maybe going through like a depression or of some sort. <laughs> Were um, you? But I... Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I was. I had broken up with my boyfriend at the time and and maybe I was. Who knows? But I'm so happy I did. You know, my life changed incredibly after that. I accomplished things that I didn't think I was going to be accomplished, failed more times than I thought a human potentially fail, but still survived at the end of the day. Back when I was an entrepreneur, I would always get the question, what's the biggest mistake you've done so far? I just couldn't remember because I felt like I was making a mistake every day. But somehow the number of rights overweight the number of wrongs balance um, just ended up being fine at the end of the you know period or year whatever and we came through and there was light at the end of the tunnel um, but I'm so happy that I did make that decision and I would of course um, make that decision 100 times over again that was a great motivational speech well thanks for joining the podcast thank you for having me Rina's first venture was a highly scalable gaming business her second venture was an operational marketplace This was a great episode to understand the differences in running such businesses. She craves the adrenaline of building businesses from scratch, so I guess being an early stage investor greatly fits her. Anyways, this is the end of today's episode. In the next episode, we'll have Peter from NNG, who grew the company to 500 employees before exiting. Here's a snapshot of all the activities we do here at Gloco. Apart from publishing a new podcast episode every Monday, we also publish video summaries on Saturdays. These short 5-10 to minute videos are published across all of our social media channels. I also write brief weekly articles with core insights from every episode. Lastly, we do Tuesday Tips, where we gather advice from very influential people and share it on our social media. To get all that into your email inbox every week, please go to our website, theglocal.co, and subscribe to our email newsletter. 
We are very active on social media, so I beg you to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and YouTube. Ciao.